Good morning, everybody. All right, it's been a while since we've had an actual person on the stage speaking to you. And uh, over summer vacation, um, it was pretty crazy and hectic, so we did a video series all summer. And so we're starting a new series today, and this is on the book of Hosea. Now, I want to give you a, a quick uh, overview first before we jump into today's text. So um, our plan is to spend about three Sundays at the beginning part of Hosea, and then we're going to watch, uh, actually we're going to watch like a little short film at the end of each one of these talks the next three weeks. These are done by a church in Irving called Irving Bible Church, about two and a half minutes long, and they kind of depict in video format the text that we're going to read this morning. So we'll put that video at the end of today's talk. Um, but then also we're going to tie into this series sort of like a mini-series. So it's kind of like a series within a series, like a dream within a dream, within a dream. And, uh, and so we're going to watch, we're actually going to be talking about idolatry um, as it relates to us, what are some of our idols. And so we'll kind of take a time out about midway through the series and do like a separate little mini-series on idolatry as it relates to us and our culture. And then go back to Hosea again. And so this whole thing will take us all the way through um, up until Christmas. So it'll be a good four months of, uh, of good stuff. So, um, so here's the, uh, I want to give you some historical background before we jump into the book itself. Um, school is approaching, which I know you're depressed about, right? And uh, so I want to show you a map because this, I'll make this like school. Um, this is a map of Israel at the time of Hosea. Now, you might wonder, okay, where in the world is this? I'll just narrow it down real quick for you. Um, you guys know where uh, Israel's located on the map, right? Not in this picture, but like as far as the world geography goes. Um, picture the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the, to the east of the, of the sea. That's what you're seeing here is the, sort of the western coast of, uh, of Israel. And um, at the time of Hosea, um, the nation of Israel was divided into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Now, it was called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Can any, anyone tell me the three tribes that were a part of considered Judah? Anyone? Hint, one of them is Judah, right? That's one. What are the other two? Benjamin. And there's a third that kind of merged with them later on, and it starts with an S. Simeon. So you guys are not ready for school at all, I can tell, right? All right, so that's the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is considered Israel, and, uh, and that's actually um, nine tribes kind of mixed in together. And so after the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom split into two, three tribes in the south, nine up in the north. And this is the context in which Hosea is writing. He's actually writing in this book to and speaking to the northern kingdom mainly in this book, okay? Now this all happens about 800 years before Christ, so almost 3,000 years ago. And uh, this is a time of relative peace and prosperity in the north. Now, you might think, well, it's a divided nation. How is it peace and prosperous? But at some point, they kind of settled in, and people got apathetic because there was peace and there was prosperity. And just like in our lives, whenever we're doing well and things are financially successful, we start to get complacent, apathetic. And then we turn to idols, right? And this is exactly what Israel did, the northern kingdom. So they turn away from God. They turn to idolatry. One of the main gods they worship was this god named Baal. 
Um, Baal seems like he's in the center of all the idolatry stories in the Bible, does he, does he not? So, um, but Baal was considered the agricultural god, so the Aggies totally loved him. And, uh, but the worship Baal, and um, Baal worship, listen to this. This is interesting. Baal worship consisted of this. So to serve the god Baal, here's what you had to do. You had to eat a lot of food, get drunk a lot, and get with prostitutes at the downtown temple. All right? So, so you can imagine finding people to sign up for this religion was not that difficult, right? It was not a hard sell. Like, okay, so what do you guys do for your religion? Get drunk, eat a lot, and get with prostitutes. Like, okay, well, sounds good, right? And so you can imagine this is a very appealing, this is a very appealing religion, and so the Israelites got caught up in this as well. And so Hosea comes along to this, this part of Israel, and, he, and his, his job is to speak truth to Israel. So here's a summary of, of, of Hosea um, for the whole book. It basically is this. God commands the prophet Hosea to marry someone who is eventually going to cheat on him. And you might ask the question, why would God ask someone, a prophet, to marry someone that everyone knows is going to eventually cheat on him? Why would God do something like that? Here's why. Because he wanted the marriage of Hosea to his wife to be an example of what Israel has done to their God. They've turned from him and, in a sense, cheated on him. And so put yourself in Hosea's shoes. You're already a prophet, and no one likes you because you're a prophet. And then God says, guess what? You get to marry someone who's going to cheat on you relentlessly. Right? To which I'm sure Hosea just said, just, can you just shoot me? Can you just kill me now? Right? And so prophets have very, very difficult jobs, especially a guy like Hosea who is being asked, first guy that I know of in history that God tells him, you're going to marry a wife who's going to cheat on you because your life is going to be an example of what Israel has done to me. Right? That's the point of this whole story. And so Hosea is a prophet. It's usually a very lonely, li- lo- lonely life. Uh, Jeremiah was called what? The what kind of prophet? The weeping prophet because nothing ever went his way, right? And so here's the deal. Uh, for, for many prophets, they often lived alone. Um, they just had a really, really tough time, tough job. Their, their job was to speak truth to the people, to, in a sense, stand on a stage and yell at people and point out what they're doing wrong and say, repent, right, and turn back towards God. So much of what a prophet did was not just to tell the – and then most of you guys think of a prophet, you think of like the um, like Gandalf-type figure with a crystal ball. Here's what's going to happen, right, and telling the future. But the, the job of a prophet was not just to tell the future. It was also to tell the truth. And what, often, what that often meant was – I'll tell you the truth, and here's the truth. If you don't turn to, to God, then here's what's going to happen to you. So there's the future pronouncement, right? It's, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen to you. This is the job of, not just to tell the future, but to tell the truth. And to tell the people, if you don't turn from this, here's what will happen to you. And so it's true. God asked prophets to do some really, really weird and strange things. In fact, Hosea wasn't the only guy who God asked to do something really, really strange. Isaiah chapter 20, we're going to look at this on the screen. 
Um, Isaiah was asked by God to be naked for three years. All right? So let's read this passage and figure out what happened here. So here's Isaiah. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So you might wonder why this is strange. This is bizarre. Why would God command Isaiah to be naked for three years? Here's the reason why. It was to be a sign against Egypt. Basically saying, Egypt, if you don't turn and repent, you're going to be naked and bloodied by your enemies, right? And, and we're sitting there going, well, could he just have said that, right? Why does he have to, like, act it out? But as you can see, God likes visuals. So God decides to, see, we have visuals. We have visuals up here, but not like that. And so, um, so God likes visuals. He likes images and pictures. So he wants to make sure they understand, right, what is being said to them. Now, some commentators will say things like, well, it's not like Isaiah walked around for three straight years every single day just being naked, right? That it was, it was maybe like a every so often kind of thing. So, like, I guess maybe Thursday was like naked Thursday or something. I don't know. But whatever, the, whatever way it happened, there was this thing with God saying God told him to do this as a sign against Egypt and Cush. So this was not the first time God asked a prophet to do something really, really strange and weird. Now, if you're sitting there telling me right now, if you're going to say to me, Dave, I feel like God's asking me to marry a promiscuous woman and to walk around naked, then I'm just going to tell you right now, that's not the voice of God that you're hearing right now, okay? Just so you're aware of that. Um, but prophets, prophets had to do some really difficult things um, in these situations, and so Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1, and you're probably, your next question is going to be like, where's that? Well, look in your table of contents. Look, at, look up Hosea. It's in the Old Testament. Should be after Daniel. And it's a fairly short book, so turn to Hosea. Chapter 1, verse 1. And here is... The first section of this book. Here's what it says. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he's setting it up, letting you know, these were the kings in the north, these were the kings in the south at the time that Hosea is speaking to these people. So verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, you know things are bad when God uses the word whoredom three times, right? But here's a summary of the book. The book is summarized in this passage, verse 2. He basically says, take a wife who is going to cheat on you. Now, um, I have mistakenly said in the past this was a prostitute. There are commentators that say that she probably was not a prostitute, 
but she was going to be a wife of unfaithfulness eventually. So we stand corrected there. But an unfaithful wife, and the purpose for this is why? Because Israel's cheated on me, so I'm going to give you a wife that's going to cheat on you. So you can basically say, you guys are just like my wife, right? That's the point of the story. At which point, he's basically in the doghouse with his wife, and he's in the doghouse with his whole nation, right? So, now I want you to understand something here. There might, I can't think of a greater violation of human relationship than adultery. Can you? I can't think of any, any, any greater violation of that than adultery. And I can't imagine a worse emotional pain to go through than having your, your husband or wife cheat on you. In fact, in a room this size, I would imagine there's, there's plenty of people in this room who have had a boyfriend or girlfriend in some way cheat on them. And there probably isn't a worse emotional pain that you can imagine in your stage of life. Now, put yourself in, in marriage. You, you've married this person, committed your life to this person. You think this is the, the perfect match, and they turn and they, they cheat on you sexually. I mean, I can't imagine a worse emotional pain than that. Can you? In fact, I would even say that we would probably prefer our husband or wife to die suddenly and have that kind of sadness than to have the kind of sadness that's caused by, by adultery, right? Because at least if someone just dies suddenly, you still know they died faithfully. They died as a faithful spouse to you. And, and Hosea experience is probably the, the most heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, emotional pain that any human being can experience, and it's the emotional pain caused by adultery. And so he goes on to say, he says, so not only are you going to marry an unfaithful wife, but you're also going to have children. It's like, great. We've got to bring kids into this? And some commentators don't know if this means, when it says children of whoredom, if it means that um, they're going to end up being like their mom, or if it means that uh, they, were, they had other fathers. Right? Some are unclear about this, but either way, it's a bad situation. It's a bad day in the life of Hosea. And so what I want you to get from this first part of the passage is two really, really big points, and here they are. All sin is idolatry, and all sin is adultery. This will be the theme for this entire book that we keep coming back to, is all sin is idolatry, and all sin is adultery. Idolatry is when we take something and put it in the place of God. We take the creation and put it in the place of the creator in our life, and that's idolatry. In addition to that, all sin that you and I commit even is in a sense adultery because we are essentially cheating on God. We have this close, intimate relationship with God, and we turn away from him, and we turn towards other things. We turn towards idols. And so all sin is essentially spiritual adultery. I know that whenever I say the word idolatry, most of you picture like a little fat baby Buddha statue, and you picture that as idolatry. Um, Now, that would be if that's your choice for an idol. But um, So most of us have a hard time wrapping our minds around idolatry, right? But all of us understand, hey, guys, can we stop the cell phone exchanging here in the front row, please? Thank you. I know it's really, really important, but just please listen. And I know that whenever we think of idolatry, we think of like, okay, what is that? 
But when it comes to adultery, I know that you guys understand that and you get that. You understand what that is. You understand how much pain that causes in a family and in a relationship. And so this is what God's trying to show. He's trying to display, this is what you have done to me. You have turned your back on me. God gave us relationships, human relationships, to teach us about himself. Right? He didn't just give you marriage just to make you happy and to bless you. That's part of it, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is the point to himself, right? That's the whole point of marriage, the whole point of human relationship. And so what I want you to know is that sin, sin, when you and I sin against God, it's not that we're just violating a law or a rule, but we are violating a relationship. We don't just break his law. We break his heart, essentially. We break a relationship, a relationship with him. So look at verse 3. It says, so he went and took Gomer. Yes, that is her name. Gomer. That's the woman we're talking about here. He took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and he, she conceived and bore him a son. So first lesson from this, don't name your kid Gomer. Just please don't do that. Spare them the misery from that. Now, we're not quite sure how he selected her because God did say, go take a wife of unfaithfulness. I mentioned to you that it wasn't necessarily a prostitute. It's not like he went down to the, the local um, brothel and was like, all right, need a prostitute. Need to get married to a prostitute, you know. Um, so it may have just been a woman who, um, I'm not quite sure how this went down, how he selected her, right? Um, how he knew that she'd be the one that would eventually cheat on him or if God just kind of provided her and said, yes, yeah, she's the one. I'm not sure how this all happened, but... Um, I'm not sure if he, like, approached her and said, you know, you seem like you'd be promiscuous. How about you and I get married, right? I'm not sure how this whole thing transpired, but the Bible might leave out some details here. So he goes and finds Gomer, and she conceives, she bears him a son. So fast forward nine months and some change. Verse 4, it says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while... I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So I want to boil this down very simply. Um, in that day, names were often prophetic. Names meant something. And so people were often named something based on what's going to happen with their life. And so this kid's name was going to be Jezreel because... God basically was saying that he was going to punish the nation of Israel for a previous sin that their leaders had committed. I'm trying to boil this down for you into, into much as I can. And so this kid's life is going to be kind of like a reminder of the coming judgment from God because of their sin in the past in this one area. And so what I want you to see from this is that when, when leaders disobey, even the people suffer. And you guys see this to be true in churches and in families. This is true. When leaders disobey God, don't follow after God, that even the people in those churches, in those families, they're the ones that suffer here as the nation of Israel. They're going to suffer because of someone else's sin, one of their leaders' sin. Look at verse 6. It says, She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. That's unfortunate. For I will, 
I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So her name's going to be No Mercy. Now, when you hear that, don't you just picture like a big wrestler, right? Isn't that kind of what you guys picture when you hear that name? I mean, this is a great name for a guy, but not for a girl. I picture like a big Amazon woman when I hear that name. And so, um, but what you see here is, is most of us think of God as just forgiving, just merciful, which he is those, he is those things, right? But we also forget that he's also just, he's righteous. There are times when he gets angry because of our sin. And he has every right to not show us mercy if he chooses to. And in this case, he has said, I am choosing not to show mercy to the nation of Israel. And he has every right to do it because he is God, he is just, and he is righteous. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And so at a time when Israel is rejecting God, Judah, the southern kingdom, is actually following God. And so God is kind of like he's saying, you know, why can't you be like your brother, right? Israel, why can't you be like Judah? And so just as we hear that God is going to show Israel no mercy, we learn he's going to show Judah that very thing. He's going to show them mercy, show them forgiveness. Look at verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people. This is just getting bad. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And so, um, another great name for a kid, not my people. Come here, it's dinner time. I mean, just imagine, like, you're, you're, na- you're named after a negative idea. Like, you're named after a negative, like, you are not my people, right? So he, this, once again, is God's, this is God's statement of their unfaithfulness and saying, you know, God's not just being moody here. He's saying that you are, you are not my people because you're, you're acting like you are not my people, right? And this is God's judgment on them. Look with me in verse, uh, in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Do you see what happens here? This, these verses kind of get go like this, where God is saying, I will show no mercy, you are not my people. Then it comes back a few verses later and says, but one day you will again be my people you will be my children. Because here's the thing, guys. God's mercy won't quit. God's mercy won't quit. And for you, if you feel like you can't be saved because you've done some horrific things, if that's you, need to know this morning that God's mercy won't quit. God's mercy will, is relentless. That as he does speak Judgment over our sin at the same time he provides a way out through his son, Jesus Christ. If you turn to him in faith.
And so even though the Israelites have been unfaithful, God is faithful in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And so what I want to do now is I want to play for you um, just this video depiction of what we just read. So let's go ahead and play this if we have it ready to go. So just as Hosea had a covenant relationship with his wife 
and she broke it. God had a covenant relationship with Israel, and they broke it. They cheated on him. They turned their back on him. And this is the kind of relationship that God offers to us. He offers us a covenant relationship with him, but you and I have, have turned from him. We've cheated on him. And, um, and so in a sense, we are just like Hosea's wife. And, uh, but what I want you to know this morning is that but when, but when you and I turn away from sin and we repent and turn towards Jesus Christ, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And you will see that theme throughout this book. But the main thing I want you to also see in this book, throughout this whole series, is that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. And I speak for myself in this, and I speak for you, but I know that many of us, we, we harbor sin, we celebrate sin at times, we turn a blind eye to sin in our own life. And one of the main things I want you to get from this whole series is understanding what sin really is. Understanding that sin is, in a sense, idolatry. It is adultery. Understand the seriousness of sin. Because I think in, in us, we often don't want to see how serious sin, we don't want to see how serious sin really is because we think we can't bear the weight of that guilt, right? But I want you to know this morning that you don't have to bear the weight of that guilt because Jesus bore it on the cross, Jesus bore that guilt on the cross. You don't have to sit there. You don't have to sit there and sort of, you know, push sin away and say, you know, yeah, it's not that bad. No, it is really bad. It's really bad. But that, that recognition should not lead to necessarily just shame and guilt. It should lead that, that, that guilt should lead you to the cross. That guilt should lead you to the feet of Jesus. That's the point of acknowledging the seriousness of sin. And so my prayer for this whole series is that, you would learn to take your sin seriously, but you would also learn to take the cross just as seriously. Because I think so many Christians, they take their sin seriously, and it leads to just shame and guilt, and they stay there. And they don't take the cross seriously and realize that that's the point of taking your sin seriously is so that you're appointed to the cross, and you take that seriously. So that is my prayer for this series. You guys go ahead and close with discussion questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.